We will remain standing for the reading of the text this morning from Matthew 10, beginning at verse 11 through verse 15. Now hear the word of God. Now whatever city or town you enter, inquire who in it is worthy, and stay there till you go out. And when you go into a household, greet it. If the household is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And whoever will not receive you nor hear your words, when you depart from that house or city, shake off the dust of your feet. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in that day of judgment than for that city. Our gracious Father, open our eyes to the realities that are in this world behind the things that our natural eyes behold. And may we have the Spirit of God now equipping this message and applying it deeply into our hearts. And we pray that you would give us wisdom as a body and wisdom as individuals to walk worthy of the Lord and to all pleasing. Grant that if there be one here that you may be working already in preparation for sending them out to be a pastor or a missionary or an evangelist, that you would continue to work through these messages in this passage to do a great work in the hearts of laborers to go out into the harvest that you will certainly bless. So encourage us this day in the power of the gospel, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> if you think that I sound like some kind of revival preacher during a time when we are in this passage, mm, so be it. <laughs> we are in this passage in the end of chapter 9 and in the beginning of chapter 10 where Jesus is sending out his disciples and this is the first of that kind of occasion that he is doing so. And he's giving them instruction. And we are, in a sense, kind of listening in on the instructions as he is giving them in more of a close kind of conversation. And yet here's in scripture, in, in put in Scripture for us to have for all time. And certainly these things have a very historic setting for them that are particular to these disciples, but they also have some very key principles for us, whether it be thinking about our missions policy or whether it be thinking about us particularly. As I've mentioned, as we, Jesus looks over in compassion over the many multitudes and he saw the crowds and he lamented and he said, you know, these people are disquieted and they are distressed and there are many, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray. And in response to the prayer that you see as chapter 10 opens up, there are then 12 that are named. And in response to the praying for labors and for ministers and preachers and evangelists, this is what I'm doing on the Lord's Day as we come and pray for our people and for you. Because every prayer that we pray, you need to understand that you need to be willing right up front when you pray to be a part of the answer to that prayer request. 
to lay your heart bare and open it up for whatever the God may have for you and whatever part of his mission, because Christ has a mission here on this earth and it will succeed with or without you, but you have a part in his kingdom if he's saved you by grace. You need to be asking God, what is my part? What is the spiritual gift you have given me for the body of Christ right here today? What are the little things that I need to be faithful in? so that you might show me greater things to be responsible for. This is not a call to have everybody go into the mission field. This is a call to be faithful right where he's put you, but to always be open to God for whatever he would desire. As we think now coming to this particular passage, as he continues to give us instruction and giving the instruction to the disciples as he's sending them out, there's two things I want us to consider from verses 11 through 15. One is the associations that missionaries have, or even that you particularly have, that sent out ones more specific to the disciples then, and then more broadly the principles applied to you. What associations are appropriate and good? And then what rejections should you expect and disassociations that you are informed and instructed to have. So let's work our way through this passage. Some parts will not be very easy for us, but we rely upon the Spirit of God to be working in our minds and souls. First of all, let's look at those proper associations in the first part in verses 11 through 13. The disciples were instructed first to go and inquire in a city. Let's just stop right there. They were to go and take some initiative in the place that they were going to minister. Inquire who is worthy. The context specifically is one of their lodging where the disciples would stay when they went out ministering the gospel. They were in to inquire who is worthy in this city. Now that does not mean that the person is self-righteous. It does not mean the person is perfect. It does not even mean that the person is necessarily saved. I mean, there's an assumption here that they're going into unsaved villages. So to inquire who is worthy does not compel them to necessarily think in terms of those who are already saved. But a worthy person is someone who has a good testimony in the community, as we would put it. He, he was a person who was not a disreputable person. And the key question here is, who can we associate with in order to advance Christ's mission? There's the specific issue, even in terms of application of who these disciples would lodge with, but there's a larger issue of worthiness of someone whom you use to advance the gospel. And by the way, you will use people to advance the gospel. Nothing wrong with that. People will use you. There's nothing wrong with that, so long as it's done in the biblical fashion. Now to be clear, and I want to be very clear here, he is not talking about associations with lost people people in order to reach them, but rather the use you have made of a person to advance the cause of Christ's mission. All right, fine line here. It's not really a very fine, but I want to clarify it. 
This is not talking about going to disreputable people. The thieves, the harlots, the prostitutes, the fornicators, the liars, the outcasts, the very disreputable people, the cheats. He is not talking about not going to those people to share the gospel with him. He's not talking about you can't have those people in your home to have dinner with for the sake of reaching those people with the gospel. The issue here is referring to the character of the people with whom these disciples would lodge, and that is an indication of our Lord's concern that neither the message nor the messenger be associated in terms of something disreputable so that there would be some misunderstanding of the message or the messenger. They were going to be connected with that host family for some time, in fact, for the duration of the time that they would be in that village. In fact, this is the same principle that Jesus gave a reason or why he did not allow the, the demons to testify and give testimony of his deity. Why did Jesus forbid the demons do not speak, be silent, when they called out who he was? We might think, wow, if you can get demons to testify of your deity, everyone would pay attention. That's really valid. That's really powerful. That's, that's incredible. That's relevant. But the Lord knew that the testimony of a being like that would in the end discredit him by associating his mission and his message with the demonic. And that's exactly what they did. Through the mouths of the Pharisees, when they said he casts out demons by the ruler of the demons, Beelzebub. Well, here we have the same kind of principle. If we advance the mission in our community through people whose reputation is suspect, and again, we're not talking about addressing them specifically to win them with the gospel. But we're talking about the use of them in the advancement of the cause. These disciples would go and lodge with people in that city, and by lodging with them and staying with them, there is a connection with both them and the message. We have to be careful. Even as the church and from pulpits that just because there are celebrities or powerful politicians or wealthy people, or the famous, or the well-known, that we do not use them if they are of disreputable character in order to advance the cause of Christ. If that association with them brings the mission into question, that's what our Lord is precluding. Now, when you think about it, think about some applications here for yourself or what that might mean around you. Uh, what if you were to be sent out as a missionary into a country and there you had a very wealthy businessman but of somewhat disreputable character in the community who offered you his vacation home for you to stay in as long as you do your work, or offered you his car, or 
any of his services to help your cause. Maybe he likes you a lot. Now, I want to qualify this. This is not saying that it is unbiblical. In fact, it is not unbiblical to accept something from a lost person. It's not unbiblical for Christians to accept things from lost people, even helps. In fact, this is exactly what he is referring to here. And we even see Cornelius in Acts chapter 10 was commended for his many alms that he gave and the prayers that went up to God, and he was lost at the time. We see the centurion who, although an unsaved man, had a testimony of worthiness. And the Jews came and said, you know, he built our synagogue, Lord. So it's not the the acceptance of something from an unsaved person, but rather the connection with that person whose life is disreputable that will bring tarnish to the message and the messenger. It's not just their outward character, however, that we need to be careful of. And by the way, it's... Not just people in the community that are unsaved that can bring this kind of of plight, but there can be professing Christians in a community that can be of disreputable character that we also have to be careful not to be too tightly connected with for the sake of the gospel. In fact, the Bible goes on and talks about disassociating from those kinds of people explicitly, but that's another message for another time. We also have to be careful of people's motive. Now, there is a reference by way of illustration. I don't know how true it is, but one of Spurgeon's biographers have given an incident in Spurgeon's life at the time when Spurgeon was commanding over 10,000 people to come and hear him preach in London. So this was not at a a low time in his life, but very much a time when God was thriving the work of his preaching. And P.T. Barnum saw those crowds and offered for Spurgeon to come to America to preach in his circus. Barnum was having lots of crowds as well but thought how much this would increase the ticket price and the revenue. So Barnum wrote Spurgeon a note reassuring him of very large crowds, paying for all of his musicians, paying for the travel expenses, and would give him an honorarium of $1,000 per sermon that he preached. And this was the gospel we're talking about. Could we not see that, oh, wow, how much more opportunity there is now to preach the gospel in a place where many people are gathered for entertainment? Tens of thousands. That might be how many preachers might think today. Spurgeon wrote back him only one line and says, you will find my answer in Acts 13.10. Sincerely yours, Charles Spurgeon. So you don't have to look it up. I'll read it. If Barnum ever 
got the message, he would have looked it up and had to read it for himself. O full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil. You enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? True or not, I don't know, but one of his biographers back in the turn of the century or, uh, wrote that, um, and you'll have to take that for what it's worth. But it, it is that kind of thing, that motive in connection with that motive that could cause a taint in the messenger and therefore in the message of the gospel itself. If this is true, that was a wise response, not only to jolt that man into a recognition of what he was living for, but on the part of Spurgeon to refuse any association with something like that. And while we have to minister and share the gospel to all types of sinners, reputable or not, we are not to associate or get so closely connected with those people of disreputable character and using them to advance our mission. And to do so will reflect very poorly upon us, and it will hinder the power of the gospel through us. Now, the next instruction that he gives them, he says, Now, remain in that city with that host until you move on. Now, Luke's version is a little more expressive. He says, And remain in the same house, eating and drinking such things as they give to you. Some commentaries, because of that, have suggested that what the Lord is concerned about is that the disciples might get tired of what they were eating from this one host, or maybe this one host just didn't have very good food, and they could move on to another, and maybe he was afraid that the disciples would think that way, and that's what they would be prone to do. Man, I'm, you know, and I, I don't think that's what it's getting at, although we shouldn't do that. Okay. We shouldn't do that. He goes on to say, which I think clarifies it, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. And I think that's the clarifying statement in how we should understand this. People ought to consider that as they minister the gospel and they're on the mission of Christ, in Christ's name, for him, as the ambassador for him, then they are not to be overly concerned by being overly burdensome to their host. Because we can feel that way when we stay at a certain place for a length of time. But Jesus says, if you're laboring for me, your labor is worthy of your room and board. So don't be overly burdened about that as if you need to keep moving from place to place. And I think that's more the spirit of what he's getting at. But then he tells him in verse 12 and 13, as you go into the house, as you've inquired in the city who is worthy, and as you then are going to stay at that host for the duration of the time that I keep you there, you are going to then greet that household. If the household is worthy, your greeting of peace will remain. If it is not, it will be returned to you. Now, what does that mean? There's something very interesting in a parallel, and I don't remember the text or the, or the cross-reference here, but there is a psalm in which the psalmist is praying, and he speaks about the prayer being returned to him. 
In this particular setting, however, this is a, uh, it was very prominent and prevalent for a cultural greeting to be given among the Jews. The Jews would go in and, and shalom, that was a, a greeting. It was very customary, a very courtesy of the Jews as they, a politeness that was expressed. Kind of like we do in the South. Oh, hello, how are you? I'm fine, how are you? And, and we might not mean a single word of what we just said, but that's what we do. That's what we say in the South. And there is a, a politeness and a courtesy that was being expressed. But in the case of these men, Jesus is taking this peace, this greeting, and he makes it more than that. He wants them to know this is something more than just a custom. It's kind of like when Paul opens his letters. He opened all of his letters in, in roughly the same format because he's using the custom of letter writing of the day in order to address his audience in his epistle. It would kind of be like what you learned in grammar school or in high school or college. As you write a letter, there's a way that you write a personal letter. There's a way you write a business letter. If you're writing a personal letter, you know, the date goes here and the salutation here with a comma after it, and then you begin the body of the letter. And there's all of this formality and, and protocol. If you write one to a business, then the return address, and then the colon goes after the greeting. Paul had a custom that he was following that was customary of his day. But Paul then takes these salutations and he then customizes it for spiritual use. It was more than a mere formality when he says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What he is expressing here is, this is going to be a re reality to you, brother. Because in the Lord... This is Christ's assurance to you. The same kind of thing is going on here when Jesus instructs his disciples to extend their peace to the home. Peace be to this home. They would go into a home. Peace be to this home. And it's akin somewhat to the ironic blessing that you know of very well from Numbers chapter 6. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. The very next verse, what we do not say, gives a word of explanation. So they, those priests, in giving this ironic blessing, so they shall put my name on the children of Israel, and I will bless them. This priestly blessing was given to the priest to invoke God's blessing on his people, and when he did, God would do it. This is instructed by God. This is not a machination of man. This is a liturgy that we are to follow and we are to believe and we understand God will do it according to his word. And it's remarkable that the disciples here have been put in that very same kind of privilege and position as the priests who were giving that blessing. May the peace of Christ rest upon this home. 
they would say. And that peace speaks of a wholeness, a healthiness, um, a soundness, a reversal of disease and disorder, a calmness in life and from chaos, a harmony with God. And the disciples had the privilege of saying that God's peace has been brought into this household and they were recipients of that. Now people could forfeit that if they were unworthy and rejected it. Why would they do that? Because the heart is wicked and every soul comes into this world at enmity with God. Now, based on verses 13 and 14 in our present passage, there's probably a transition here. And why I say that is because of the way that they are going into villages that know not Christ. They were to find and inquire who is worthy. They would stay there and they would bring their peace upon it. And then in verses 13 and 14, if the household is worthy, then let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return. For whoever will not receive you or your words. There seems to be a transition at this point in the text and even perhaps maybe in this point of the disciples stay at that particular house. Based upon if they received this message or not. And if they received the message, then the peace of God would remain on that place. If they did not receive the message, the peace would be returned to them, and off they went. So as you go into the house, at that point, and then transitions into how this household now responds to the message, if they have not given heed to you or the message, shake off the dust from your shoes. That was the instructions that they were to hold. But there's another kind of household, and that was the worthy household. And that's what the scripture, how it, how it articulates it here. The one who received the message that you brought. And in those cases, this blessing of peace would be effectual to them. God will bless those people with the very peace that you entered their home with. And God himself will bless them. Now, there's a liturgy here. There's a liturgy that God is instructing us in for how we are to go into a village, how we are to enter a home, and how we are to leave a home. And God is in that. Now, I want you to think about taking this fast forward out of just the disciples' historic position and now placing that in terms of a personal application in your own life. Think about the possibilities of the people that you come in contact with the gospel in the community. When you share the gospel with them, it's as if Jesus had said in Luke 19, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you, surround you, and close you in on every side, and level you and your children within you to be uh, to the ground, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not know the time of your visitation. 
Perhaps you go visit your neighbor. Perhaps you knock on your door. Perhaps you run into someone in the community, and here is your peace. Here is your opportunity. And the door is open for you to utter the gospel to this person. Just know this, that when you share the gospel with someone, when you engage someone in a conversation with the gospel, if they had any conception of the significance of the people that were then talking with them with this message, because you bring the possibility of peace. And that's what deep down they're longing for. What a potent possibility you bring to them when you bring them the message of the gospel. You are someone here that God has used and is using to have this potent, life-seeking, life-desiring blessing of God. And right there when you share the gospel with someone, you've got that potential. Now the second thing that we need to consider is Jesus is instructing them as they go. They were to inquire, they were to stay at the post, and this is how they were to act and what they were to do. He's also going to instruct them because there's a matter of rejection and disassociation given in verses 14 and 15. And I want you to notice, first of all, in verse 14, the inseparable nature of the message from the messenger. And whoever does not receive you nor hear your words. Did you get that? Whoever does not receive you nor hear your words. There is an inseparable nature of the messenger to the message. Whoever doesn't receive you nor hear your words. You cannot divide the message of the gospel from the sincere messenger who takes it who brings it, who bears it. We talk in cultural terms today that you can't separate the medium from the message. Or some people say you can. Some would say, no, the, the medium is inseparable so that the medium is a part of the message. And I think we have a perfect example for the biblical support of that particular principle right here. If the people of that household do not receive you because of the message, they don't receive you at all because you're inseparable from the message. The people in China today are being cast out of their homes because of the message. People that are being persecuted for the gospel are being persecuted because of the message. Because of the stance that they take. But know this, that whoever that gospel comes in contact with, they will never leave that person the same. They had a possibility of peace or they had the possibility of God's wrath, but it never leaves the person the same. So Jesus instructs them on this very point. When you go out of that place and you are not received, then you are to shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against that place. 
Many of you know that little episode that I had on in Edinburgh on the Royal Mile, ignorant and naive as I was as a Presbyterian going over there for the first time and going to Giles Kirk, the home of Presbyterianism where John Knox preached and caused Mary Queen of Scots to flee and all of those great stories. And I go to this nothing but a dead edifice where the preacher preaches not the gospel but takes the word of God and so taints it to deny the inerrancy of scripture, the bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ, and three core cardinal doctrines of orthodoxy in less than 15 minutes. And I went out of there and I was so fired up, I just didn't shake the dust off my shoes. I threw them at the door. And then I pounded them on the steps as a testimony against that place and prayed that God would raise down that church. It is not just a pagan place. It's a synagogue of Satan that takes the gospel and perverts it so unwittingly to very careless sheep. And here we have the first hint in this passage that these disciples will not be universally received with this message. They come with the Lord's compassion and the harvest is plentiful and they've been prayed to send out and they go in the authority of Christ himself. But the truth of the matter is that you can go out with the Lord's compassion, with the right message, empowered with the Holy Spirit, even accompanied by good works that authenticate your message, and you still may not be received. Now the harvest is truly plenteous. And God will bring in the harvest, but do expect a lot of rejection. And do not let your heart grow weary in well-doing. Now Jesus warned us, like him, that we will not be universally received because of this very message of peace that we bring. And yet it's on this very point that many today have rethought their methodology of evangelism. Now, this isn't working. So what should we do to make the gospel more attractive? How can we... I know... We'll make a circus go on in here, and then we'll bring a preacher. The things that evangelicals do today in order to win people to Christ, to be relevant to them, to do things on their terms. I do not want to be saved on my old man's terms. That's exactly what I want to be saved out of. And I remember an old preacher told me once, he says, Marion, what you win people with is what you win them to. You win them with entertainment, you've got to keep them with entertainment. And why we have so much entertainment going on in the church is because that's what those people were won to.
We don't have to relate to people on their terms. See? Let's remember on this very point the story that Jesus told about the rich man and Lazarus. I'll just kind of cut through some of the to the end of that story because at the end, the rich man was in torment and he cried out from hell for relief from this torment. And when none was found, he begged Abraham to, to have Lazarus go back and testify to his five brothers that they would not endure the same thing that he's enduring. And Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let your five brothers hear them. And the rich man said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes from the dead, they will repent. But Abraham said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they persuade it if one rises from the dead. Talk about sufficiency of the scripture, right? That's all our Lord gave to these men, the sufficiency of the scripture. Just go with the message. Jesus expects the message of the gospel to be sufficient, for in it is the power of God. It's a message authenticated with the good works of mercy, yes, but it is the message that has the power. We don't have to change the message. We don't have to adorn the message. We don't have to add to the message. We don't have to attract people in a different way for the message. We go with the message. And we stay true to the message. And we do not associate things that would dilute the message. Oh, how the evangelical conservative church needs to recover this core principle and stop trying to be relevant with all of the lost world on their terms. Shame on us. If you give them the gospel and they reject it, just realize that they rejected Jesus. You have to expect it will not be universally accepted. And even if you did a great work, even if one of their beloved comes back from the dead to testify, even then they're not going to believe the message that you bring. Do you believe that? It is impossible for men to believe this gospel message. Impossible. You can't do a thing to make it possible. That is the work of God. So just trust God. Every single one of you is impossible to save, but not with God, and you are here only by the possibility that God supernaturally worked in your heart, breathed into you life through the Holy Spirit, regenerated you out of deadness into life, and you are here this day as a testimony of the grace of God and not anything any man could have ever done to persuade you apart from that. So expect some rejection. You and your message will not be universally received. And if they don't receive you, shake off the dust. And that was a common practice. What does that mean? I, I didn't even know what it meant when I'm banging my shoes, pitching a little tantrum on the royal mile. I just knew it was in the Bible. Well, it was a common practice 
And if, in fact, it was very clearly understood in, in Jesus' day with those Jews that the disciples were sent specifically to minister to. Don't go in the way of the south of the Samaritans. Don't go up in the north of the... Go to the lost house of Israel. These are the people we went to. And so these people are going to understand these terms because when a Jew traveled through a Gentile nation, that's what they would do. It was a gesture after they got finished off of those Gentile soils of completely disassociating themselves from those people. We had, um, I mentioned our, our, our Orthodox Jew friend that was in construction and built the pool up the hill at the Salds place. And I had many action, interactions with him, uh, and, and Bert did too. Uh, and, and as we were conversing with, um, with this Orthodox Jew and his worker, uh, they would have lunch, but the Jew would not have anything to do with any of us Gentiles at lunchtime. We couldn't sit by him. We couldn't sit with him. We couldn't be around him. He had his own little place as though he was kind of dusting his feet off from us. Well, Jesus instructs his disciples to do to the Jews who reject this message of the gospel what they typically did with the Gentiles. They would understand this practice. Again, there's a liturgy here prescribed. This was an actual public and deliberate act that gave clear communication that this city is no better than a Gentile pagan culture. That's, that was what the message was. It was a symbolic act of disassociating yourself and severing even the slightest connection. It was saying the messenger was not willing to have anything more to do with this house or this village or this place who have rejected this gospel message. It was kind of like washing our hands from any contact whatsoever with these people. It is in effect saying you are left to your own fate I am free of your blood. My peace has returned to me, and it will not be for you. So here, I, I can even leave the dust off my feet that I've tracked in off of your house back to you. Now, Paul did things like that. In Acts 13, 46, he, he was telling the Jews, now since you reject it, Judge for yourselves, unworthy of everlasting life. Behold, we now turn to the Gentiles. Again, he did the same thing in Corinth in Acts 18 when he was confronted by the Jews for preaching the name of Christ. He says, and he shook his garments and said to them, your blood be upon your own hands. I am clean. From now on, I go to the Gentiles. Oh, if they had only known the day of their visitation. Now, that does raise a question, does it not, about how long a missionary is to stay in a particular area when there's little or no response to the gospel in that place. We've all been blessed by missionary stories. And the Bible does um, just encourage persistence and faithfulness for the souls of men. 
There are many missionaries who've gone into foreign lands with many difficulties. One that comes to mind with Adoniram Judson as he goes to Burma. This is the missionary who married four women because they all died in their service for the Lord. Great sacrifice, had children that died, and he labored for over seven years before the first convert. And after 12 years, he only had 18. There are stories and stories and stories that go on like that of faithful persistence with the gospel in a land. But there's also passages like this one and its reference to Paul. And that tells me that there is no formula on when to stay and when to go. Scripturally, both sides are presented. It is a walk of faith and the leading of the Holy Spirit to impress upon the messenger the application specific to the circumstance and the situation. Do I stay and persist? Do I not grow weary in this well-doing? Or do I shake the dust off my feet and move somewhere else? Paul did that. Jesus told his disciples to do that. And there was also times when they persisted. But perhaps we should also think about impressing upon certain peoples and certain villages and certain towns and certain places in practicing something like this. Not merely pulling up the stakes and leaving the place, but with a formal announcement of a symbolic act that says to them, I am done with you with the gospel. Your blood be upon your own head. And when the messengers of God say that, being led of the Spirit, God is done with them. Perhaps another generation, but God is done with them. Verse 15, we have something very fearful to be declared. Assuredly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in that day of judgment than for that city. More tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah. Every Jew knew of that historical fact. In fact, over 40 times in the Bible is Sodom and Gomorrah mentioned as an example to us and to God's people. Jude 7 reflects upon it. 2 Peter reflects, as an example to you, remember Sodom and Gomorrah. It will be more tolerable in the judgment for them than for these people. Now this is an essential lesson if you live an ungodly life here on earth. What the Lord is here saying is that those who hear the message but they reject it, they will be, the judgment to them will even be more severe to them than for Sodom and Gomorrah. See, the guilt of a person is in direct proportion to the magnitude of the gift that God has offered him and that he has spurned. Let me say that again. The gift of the the guilt of the person is in direct proportion to the magnitude of the gift that God has offered him and that he has spurned. 
The height of privilege makes a people more responsible and more liable for guilt. And so they are storing up wrath for themselves. So never underestimate your significance in sharing the gospel with someone. That person will forever be changed. The gospel never leaves a man where it found him. Your presence and giving the gospel will change everything forever, whether good or bad. And if he rejects it and he leaves this world in ultimate rejection, then that very testimony that you gave to that person in that very day will come back to accrue the guilt in his judgment for severity even greater than that of Sodom and Gomorrah. Don't think your witness for Christ is ever a waste. It never is. And as we close, I want us to be mindful that we have a responsibility with the gospel. Just remember that the message cannot be separated from the messenger. Be careful that your associations do not miscommunicate the gospel message. Who you hang out with and who you befriend and how you think about those things. Oh, not that you can't have a sinner in your home to reach him for Christ. No. But who are you connected with and how are you connected with people and with societies and associations and in places that could discredit the very gospel that you adorn. Be careful of your manner of life and your lifestyle, which are the testimony that gives off the consistent gospel message in the manner that you live. And secondly, don't expect that you will be universally received. And when you are not and you've been faithful with the word, don't feel like you have to try this or try that or that you were not good enough and this and that. And certainly there's ways that we can always improve in sharing the gospel, but we should not go away from there feeling like it was our fault. The message is sufficient enough. Just make sure you can give the message. And three, as messengers with the gospel, let us all be faithful with both the message and our own vessels which bear it. We are responsible for the Lord for the stewardship he's entrusted to us. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, we pray that you would empower this message and show us this week how it applies to our life as we walk by faith and not by sight. And impress upon us the work of the Spirit and the resolution that the message is sufficient and the Scripture is all sufficient unto the saving of souls with the power of the gospel, with the Holy Spirit. Lord, may we be faithful with that glorious, eternal message. And may we be faithful in the manner of person that we live that it would not discredit the very message that we embrace. So, Lord, take this and apply the specifics to us individually and also to this church corporately for the sake of the name of Christ and his great mission here. Amen.